<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Oh, hi. Before we talk with Laura Flanders, don't forget to go shopping through our Amazon link at BobSuska.com. The all-caps Amazon link just beneath the logo will take you to the front page of Amazon where you can go shopping until you're dropping. But by using our link, we'll collect a small commission on some of your purchases. Thanks for clicking the Amazon link. And now let the cartoons begin. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, September 9, 2020, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is one of my all-time favorite broadcasters, the great Laura Flanders is here. You might remember Laura from her time with Air America Radio, but she's also the host of the brand new series for PBS, The Laura Flanders Show. It's a radically different Sunday morning program for a radically different time, bringing a different forward-looking take on the stories affecting us all and without all that horse race crap on the other Sunday shows. LauraFlanders.org for more. Meanwhile, if you dig today's show, don't forget to support this podcast by subscribing to our Patreon page at BobSuskaShow.com. All right, let's talk news media, TV, and politics with Laura Flanders. Hello, this is Laura. Oh my goodness, it's my favorite voice in all of radio. Laura Flanders, it's Bob Seska. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. You say that to all the women. <laughs> Well, with you, it's absolutely <laughs> true. I love your voice. I, I'm a longtime radio podcast guy, so I'm an aficionado. You have a great voice yourself. Glad uh, to be with you. Thank you so much. You know, before we dig into your new show, which I definitely want to talk about today, I want to get your reaction to the uh, bombshell new quotes from Bob Woodward's uh, <laughs> new book. My God, I, it's... No, I was just tweeting, you know, what on earth are we going to talk with, talk about with Bob Seska? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> it's a shame the news is so slow these days, isn't it? Uh... It's a cry and shame. I'm just sitting here twiddling my thumb. <laughs> so... No, I mean, this thing is amazing. I mean, yeah. look at it. Look at the... Put, put the pieces in the picture here. Mm. For one thing, I thought it was a fascinating detail that the reason that Donald Trump agreed to all of these interviews was he felt dissed by Woodward failing to talk to him for his previous book, Fear. You know, so now for Rage, I'm going to submit to 18 recorded interviews. Yeah. Like, what about Watergate, Nixon, Woodward, and tapes do you not get? <laughs> right, right. To me, I've got this ongoing uh, maxim about Donald Trump, that Donald Trump always makes things worse for Donald Trump. Everything he well, does in some way screws himself, but yet somehow, Laura... He's able to survive. I will never understand that, how he can still be polling at whatever it is, 40 to 44 percent. It's mind boggling. Well, they say Nixon was polling at 30 percent the day he was impeached. But, you know, when yeah. we say it's bad for Donald Trump, in this case, you know, levity aside, 190,000 people are dead, many right. of whom don't need to be dead. So this was bad for Trump, but way worse for a lot of people who oh, are yeah. simply not living and breathing today. Because what he did, and I feel like we in the media have to constantly stop in our, you know, speed alarm of outrage yeah. to just say, whoa, wait a minute, these are life and death people here. And uh, it, this is, I mean, how many times can we say this is criminal? And it's also, yeah. you know, federal. Yeah. And, and how many <laughs> it's times? Governmental. 
How many times is there going to be another story like this that just doesn't seem to crack that nut of whatever Donald Trump's base of support is, his 40 percenters who will cling and hang on for dear life no matter what happens? It's one of the most amazing dynamics I've ever seen in uh, politics and going back well, through all history. Well, we can do is keep pushing, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I was just checking what was playing on Fox News Live. You know, they have a very important breaking story about two teenagers who stole a MAGA hat. You know, that, that's the lead story, right? Now. Of course. So, of course it is, Laura. My God. They're busily trying to figure out what the heck they're going to put on this evening. Yeah. And you know what? I think it's great that you went over and checked Fox News Channel. I, I really believe that more of our fellow liberals need to be experiencing what's happening over there. Sometimes we shield ourselves against that, I think, for our own mental health or something along those lines. But to me, it's always more comforting knowing what's happening rather than uh, imagining what could be happening on Fox News, don't you think? I think it's also comforting that it's not that our neighbors and fellow Americans are just sort of innately cult members and, you know, members of the cult of Trump, but they are actually being actively misled. And we know, you know, the more you watch Fox News, the less you know about what's really happening in the world. And that was what Fox News was founded for. And again, you know, we talk about the individual. We need to keep remembering the structural and the structural story of this election and the election of Donald Trump and the period that we're living in and what makes it different from the periods that have preceded it and the elections that preceded it is that we have now lived since 1996 with a telecommunications law passed and approved by a Democrat Mm -hmm. that allowed this two-track communication system to develop, um, aided and abetted by the development of the internet outside of regulation and with no checks and balances, that do now, this system does now enable people to live in two different realities of their own choosing. In the meantime, we've diminished the spending at the level of public education on everything having to do with civics, at the level of um, even graduate education when it comes to media study mm-hmm. and, and, and our trade unions that used to be organs, if you will, of public education and political education for the members have no resources to do any of that either. So we have like a perfect storm of information um, crisis. Yeah. And that's where we find ourselves. I mean, if California is on fire, our house, our, our information house is on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are just not really seeing the size of the problem. How do we put that egg back in the shell, though? I mean, that's my conundrum with all of this, because I feel like, yeah, there were a lot of decisions that were made, uh, particularly during the Reagan administration, one during the Clinton administration, as you were just mentioning in 1996. And then I wonder, how do we fix that without 45 to 50 percent of the country just going indiscriminately bonkers at the thought of rolling back some of the programming on AM talk radio, rolling back some of the programming we see on cable news? How do we do that? How do we achieve that, Laura? Well, you're speaking my language now, you know, because <laughs> the whole point of the Laura Flanders show is to talk about systemic change. So, yeah. you know, yes, we take on those big subjects that are like way beyond anything we're going to resolve in one election or with one vote or with one candidate. So is uh, do we talk on my show about the things that will be changed tomorrow? No, but we do talk about the things that can be changed and do live differently mm-hmm. in different parts of the world and even in different parts of this country. So I believe the answer to, you know, inaccurate speech or defamatory speech or problematic speech is more speech. But I do believe that we need, so it's not about cutting anybody off, it's about adding what we need to return to is a sense that we had in the U.S. in the 1930s that there needs to be a place in our media spectrum that is well-endowed, yeah, yeah. <laughs> resourced, but that is not resourced by corporations or political influence. Mm-hmm. So a, a truly invested in by public resources, public media platform. Nowadays, we have to ensure that we have a commercial-free internet. But more than that, I think we actually need to look at what remains of our independent media, public television, um, educational programming, public radio, and say, you know what, we will lose these two if we don't invest in them with public dollars and take them out of the sort of boxing ring of um, every four-year or three-year appropriations in Congress. So that's, you know, my answer to the problem. There are also other models that are being tried out around the country, Mm -hmm. around 
um, media co-ops in different plots. We've, we've talked about some of those and we will talk about more of those on my show, but this is the kind of thing that we, that we talk about. We're not afraid to, to look at the big problems and say, Whoa, wait, how do we unravel some of that and do it differently? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, that's you, say, where we're at. and you call them big problems and they are big problems. The interesting thing about <laughs> your new show, Laura, is the fact that it kind of eschews all of the other Sunday show crapola. You know what I mean? You're not covering who won the week or you're not chasing down the latest Trump horror show. Of course, some of those things are important. Uh, we can debate the horse race crap, but I mean, as far as covering Trump, that's important. But at the same time, yep. you're covering stories that are big stories, but which can't really survive normally because of all the air being sucked out of the room by Donald Trump. And so for that reason, among many, uh, I really admire what you're doing uh, with your programming. I watched your first show from Sunday, and it's really compelling stuff. It's w- Was this the idea from the beginning to, to cover topics that weren't getting a lot of air uh, elsewhere? Absolutely, Bob, and thanks for watching. I'm so glad you did. You know, I keep thinking about what one of our guests said on that week's show where she said, my life was changed by a single sentence. Um, And in her case, the sentence was about possibility lying in the phenomenon of her Tourette syndrome, something that a neurological condition that she'd been experiencing as an incredible challenge. And with one sentence that said, wait a minute, there could be power in that spontaneity language machine that you have called Mm -hmm. the Tourette. You know, I think of our show, I hope, I mean, I, I hope that our show can function in that way, that you can come away with one idea that makes you realize all is not lost. It is not hopeless. We do not have to live this way. There are alternatives. Um, As Elizabeth Warren says, you know, big problems deserve and require big solutions. I think we just add that third leg to the story, which is to say that this is also a moment of big possibilities. Um, You know, the system isn't broken. It's made this way. It could be made differently. It hasn't always been the same. Um, And I guess silence is is my point is, Silence about the state of our economy, the state of our health care, the state of inequality. Silence isn't an option and neither is sameness. If we return to our pre-COVID reality um, a year from now or two years from now or three years from now, as we did to our pre-financial crash reality of, of 2008, mm-hmm. we will have failed um, the future because the future demands we make some major changes right now. And you know, none of us can be expected to feel anything but pretty overwhelmed most of the time. Yeah. If my show can say, look, there are actually some things you can do. And in fact, these people over here are doing something like that. They just need a little extra oomph, government support, um, popular support, and people knowing about it. Um, I think we can actually help break down some of the despair that is at least part of why people line up to support a Trump uh, type of candidate. Yeah, and, and some upcoming episodes, uh, some topics here, uh, policing alternatives in, in Newark, uh, uh, farming while black, uh, the disability arts <laughs> movement, uh, the co-ops uh, that developed under dictatorship in Spain. I mean, these are really juicy topics. And my only worry, Laura, uh, to be perfectly honest, is I think viewers and digesters of, of news these days have been so conditioned over the last three and a half years, especially for that pulse pounding adrenaline rush of what? Oh, my God, I can't believe. Oh, holy shit. I can't believe he said that. And, and, and what you're doing is you're saying, OK, look, that's fine. But there are these other things and these other things are just as important. I think that's so incredibly admirable. You know, there was somebody that once said, you know, the, the, the morning news, um, you know, I don't know. I end up watching the morning headlines. I, I am in a clump on the floor, you know, and I <laughs> yeah. and, and the, your show helps lift me back up. You know, and um, I think that's kind of what it is. It's like we need the rest. We need the alarms. We need to be alert to the crises that are happening. But I do think even if it's just once a week, preserve one half hour to a a show that's about possibility and and possibility within our reach. This is not pie in the sky. This is stuff happening right now. And this week's show that's about Spain and how under the dictatorship of Franco that lasted for 37 years, this whole cooperative economy developed because this part of Spain was basically under military occupation and denied the right to vote, to um, get elected, to um, you know, to run for office. They were denied health care. There were no schools. I mean, the worst of the worst. And they figured out a system of mutual aid, helping one another, feeding one another, um, all pooling the resources for an insurance program and a bank and an 
schooling system that exists to this day. You know, are we going to recreate what the Mondragon cooperatives did uh, in the 20th, you know, in the 20th century? No, but it gives you the sense of, whoa, in even worse conditions than this, people managed to figure out solutions. And those solutions weren't just possible. They were kind of preferable. Yeah. It's the second, something like the third biggest industrial entity in all of Spain right now. Mm. Um, and something that has some, like 100,000 people employed. So it's... Um, it's not Pollyanna. The struggles we're up against are huge, but I think whenever we're led to believe this is just the way things are, the economy is inevitably like this, um, we get kind of fed up. We either don't participate at all or we just rather sign up to have some strong guy tell us what to do. I mean, just knowing the state of the news media right now, knowing the state of broadcast television right now especially, do you get the sense that American public television is going to allow you to build your audience? I mean, is there going to be pressure on you to sort of cover some of these more uh, pulse-pounding topics? Or do you get the sense that they're going to let you develop these other stories in a way that's going to be meaningful and that will maybe take a little bit longer to build up a, a sizable audience given, again, all of the air being sucked out of the room? Is that, you get a sense that they're going <laughs> well, to allow you to do that? I think PBS are going to allow us to do whatever. You know, we bring them the programming um, as long as it's not directly featuring the people that fund it, they don't seem to make a big complaint. Although I do wonder about why the Wall Street Journal is allowed to do its show and other funders have been allowed to produce programming that's all about themselves. But be that as it may, um, you know, we're around for this first season. We've got 26 episodes. Wow. They're available to local stations all across the country. They've got a whole year they can play them in. Um, and in the meantime, we're leaving nothing to chance. We're also building our own audience online at the YouTube channel that we have. And people can either find our show on the World Channel, which is a fascinating um, subscription service that over 175 public television stations subscribe to. Wow. They can, or they can watch us on their own public television station whenever that is scheduled. And we've got about 97 that are putting it in their lineup. Or they can just come to our website, lauraflances.org, and sign up for the television or the radio. You know, I've been in this business a long time, Bob, and I've ridden on very many different horses, whether it was Pacifica Radio or Air America Radio, um, MSNBC. Mm -hmm. This feels like a good thing to be doing right now. I have confidence that there's a place in people's media diet for a show like this one. And with help from people like you, we're going to get the word out. So we'll give it our best shot. What do you say? Absolutely. Well, you know, I want to go back to uh, 2004 and talk about the rise of Air America, which is where I, I first heard of you. And it was an interesting time. I mean, uh, the Huffington Post was just in its early stages of development. And I, I started blogging over there in 2005. But there was in 2004, there seemed to be this uh, grassroots movement against George W. Bush and his administration feels a lot similar to what we're experiencing right now. What are some of the differences between what we're experiencing today with an incumbent president moving toward the potential of re-election and what we were going through in, in 2004 when you and, and the rest of the crew at Air America were starting out that network? What were some of the uh, what are some of the major differences between then and now? Because I always go back. I you know, for the last year I've been thinking yeah, no. that 2004 election has been haunting me uh, because it was kind of shocking. I mean, we kind of thought John yeah. Kerry was going to pull it out. So what's the contrast between then and now? Well, two huge things. One, and I wrote about this in my book, Blue Grit, the Democrats at that time were not learning lessons from social movements. They would, didn't even appreciate what social movements, grassroots groups, mm. today the equivalent would be Black Lives Matter, Me Too, you name it, the movement for black lives, um, Bernie Sanders, our revolution. The Democratic Party at the official level had zero respect for any of that. And I think the whole electoral system was determined by those parties. They, um, you know, they did their... Um, voting exercises, they organized their door-to-door uh, -door, door knocking campaigns. And, you know, everyone else pretty much sat it out and hoped the result would work the right way. We've given up on that. Uh, the grassroots groups, social movements, get it. We've got to get involved in political work. We've got to get ourselves involved in electioneering. And even if the candidate isn't the dream candidate, we're going to have feet on the ground. And I think that we're seeing that in the COVID sense of feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we're seeing that in this election as you have movement groups from She the People, pro 
you know, proposing, you know, supporting women of color running for office um, to this incredible operation that um, Stacey Abrams has developed out of Georgia, securing the vote to Black Lives Matter, which isn't about elections, but they're getting people elected locally. Um, They're looking at down ticket races. You've got the Bernie Sanders crew holding their noses and pulling the lever for Biden and Harris and even getting involved in the campaigning. So I think on the one hand, things have really changed in terms of grassroots groups not leaving it up to the party to know what it's doing, mm-hmm. um, which I think was the big reason why Kerry lost. You've got a lot of us much more aware of how easy it is to steal an election, because I will always argue that that 2004 race was lost by a few dodgy voting machines in in, uh, in Cleveland, somewhere around there. <laughs> um, the, the consciousness of the vulnerability of our electoral our elections system, I think, is much bigger. Um, but sure, I won't be happy or rest secure until the inauguration is over. That's right. Next year, and we'll have plenty of work to do on our, you know, left on our hands. But um, I think we're a lot smarter. We're a lot more engaged. Yeah. And boy, poor old Air America, we have now streaming online, which we didn't really have back then, and we weren't able to stream, and that made it much harder for our radio network um to to succeed and thrive i think it was a little ahead of its time we needed it in 2004 but boy if it had just launched about four years later i think we still would be on the air it's fascinating to me how liberal talk radio has has always struggled and i've have some theories as to why that is but at the same time right-wing radio seems to flourish um what's your theory in terms of the differences between uh, why the left can't seem to get a solid footing in uh, AM talk radio while the right has been able to do it. Is it a generational thing? What's the what's holding back? Because oh, it seems like the left, we do well with podcasts, I, but not with radio. I would love to know what your explanation is. I'm so bored <laughs> of mine. Well, I mean, I, I think it's because I think it's because younger people don't even know what AM radio is. I think that's part of the problem. Um, you know, I'm in the Generation X category, so I mean, I I remember broadcast radio, and I was in broadcast mm-hmm. radio, so I'm I'm kind of out of the loop when it comes to this yeah. generational thing. But I think. Uh, younger people tend to like the internet more than, you know, broadcast. I keep coming back to, to, to money, yeah. you know, and that's why I'm bored of my answer. But I think, you know, AM radio requires a large number of sponsors, you know, requires you to have sponsors. And on the right-hand side, you've got a lot of corporations that are directly invested in the messaging of right-wing yep. punditry. Yep. Attacks, you know, deregulate, you know, lower the minimum wage, mm-hmm. no government interference. Corporations are good. Global monopolies are just fine. Bring on the ads for gold. Bring on the ads for um, Walmart. You know, and on the progressive side, we've got a lot more qualms. And I think what what we learned at Air America was that some liberal donors have deep pockets, but they're not going to be there forever. um, And they don't see a direct return to their business interests from the messaging that is going out through the airwaves. So I think their hearts are in the right place. Um, but it's not as if you're getting rewarded every quarter with a great return to your shareholders, yeah. which is the case on the right-hand side. I mean, they invested for, what do they say, McDonald's? Was it invested for <laughs> 10 years in Rush Limbaugh before he made a penny? Right. They knew it was going to benefit them in the long run, and it did. But, yeah, I mean, on the on the other side, um, where we started this conversation, I think if Air America could have been streaming, could have been on the Internet, um, we would have been around, you know, and could have started a lot later. So yeah. people were in the habit of carrying around a device that enables you to stream. Um, then we would have had much more success. I'm still a radio person. I just drove from one part of the country to the other. I like being able to tune in different radio shows, mm-hmm. but I understand the, the attraction of having your audio book or your podcast diet programmed from the minute you leave house to the minute you arrive home yeah. uh, without any interruption. I, I get that. I'm for, I listen to a lot of podcasts too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I find myself craving the live aspect of radio. Me too. And, I love it. <laughs> yeah. And not only as a host, but also as a listener. I mean, I was thinking about this yesterday. I went out for a walk and I was like, boy, I'd love to be able to monitor what's happening in the news live somehow. I mean, wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of technology that allowed you to listen to live <laughs> news, but it's not really all that available unless you want to hear you know, Rush Limbaugh, or Dennis Prager, or one of these crazy people in between well, the you newscasts. Used to, you know, 
you used to be able to just walk around with a little portable radio. Remember yeah, that? Yeah. So I live on I live in Manhattan on on Canal Street, and there used to be a guy before the Walkman. I'm really showing my age now. <laughs> who would tape? He had literally a rubber band with a with a, a transistor radio taped to his ear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've come a long way from them, but maybe we forget that you can still tune in some radio. Although, you know, what COVID reminded us, and I, and I think it was interesting, was that so many of our, you know, even if you are just talking about actual on the air radio, COVID showed us how little local radio was left. Mm-hmm. I was living in a rural area that was getting all the news from Manhattan, but very little news about what was happening there in that county, which had a very different equally dire, I mean, for the people that live there, dire and important story of COVID, different from what was happening 100 miles away in Manhattan. And there's very little local news. I I cherish every bit of it that's left. Mm -hmm. In fact, I started my radio career at a local AM, uh, full-service AM station. So there was music, news, weather, talk. I mean, it was everything, this big hodgepodge of programming. And there was nothing else like it. And it was an amazing, even though, you know, I was a kid and I didn't know what I was doing. And the radio station was more for 65 plus (laughs) that demographic being a 20, 23 year old doing a radio show for the 65 plus audience was an interesting experience. (laughs) Uh, But still, it was it was it was was local and it was valuable and it had quite a dedicated audience for those reasons. But, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, do you think that the COVID thing might change that? I mean, I do, I do think that people got a new appreciation for the local yeah. of every kind, the store, the farm, mm-hmm. the uh, media outlets, um, the taxi service. I don't know what, I mean, sure. We all got a lot of deliveries, have been getting a lot of deliveries from unnameable corporations, but do you think people came out of the last year more aware of the value of some of their small scale local operations? That's a good question. I think what will reinvigorate uh, local radio is the disintegration of radio, where there's a lot of stations where they're just getting unloaded or they haven't been picked up by some sort of multinational iHeartRadio or Clear Channel Radio Mm -hmm, Broadcasting mm -hmm. Network or anything like that. So I think maybe there's a return to local ownership in our future. I just can't help but to think if vinyl can come back, I think broadcast radio can come back. If there's a chance. Yeah, really? Yeah. If there's a chance for cassettes and VHS tapes, <laughs> my God, there's an actual marketplace for those things. I think people might come back to broadcast radio. There's something that's unique about it that you can't get over the internet or anything else. And I think there's a, an appeal there to be had. It's just a matter of waiting and seeing for that to uh, for that pendulum to swing back. And I hope it does. Me too. Well, I think that's what we're going to see in a lot of places. And there's a lot, again, of what we're covering on our show now is yeah. how in the, in the face of failure of corporations or government to provide or media operations to provide, people are doing for themselves and and especially in this moment and i think in the months to come people are going to be providing for themselves i mean look where trump has left us you Mm -hmm. can't rely on the federal government um and the the state governments have more pressure on them than ever the mayors are under tremendous pressure you know people are figuring out how to fill the gap and you know i'm reminded in the 1930s apparently roosevelt's new deal was largely drawn from studying what they called the, democ- the, the laboratories of democracy, the mm-hmm. labs of democracy that had grown up during the Depression, where people had experimented with different ways of, you know, like I was talking about in Spain, feeding each other, health insuring each other, mm-hmm. you know, lending money to each other, credit unions, you name it, cooperatives, linking electricity to places that didn't have it. Um, a lot of what became the New Deal was the best of those experiments. And I think we're going to look forward 10 years and say, Whoa, a lot of what comes into being, let's hope, under a new administration, um, but what comes into being over the next decade or so will be building on the experiments that people have put in place right now. Uh, at least that's that's what I, I'm going to pull in that direction or push. Okay, we'll get back to our conversation with Laura here in just a second. But unfortunately, COVID-19 infection rates are exploding across the nation again. And we know it's common sense that everyone should wear a mask. And finally, most states have put mask mandates in place. Face masks are still our best way to protect ourselves, our family, and our community. 
But what happens when the mask you thought you were buying is a piece of crap? Well, the FDA has provided a list of authorized respirator mask manufacturers, but finding those masks has been a challenge and verifying their authenticity even harder. But right now, the NewDealShop.com has FDA-authorized respirator masks with anti-fake authentication on every package to ensure you're getting exactly what you need. These masks are tested by the NPPTL in the United States and provide greater than 95% filtration. Right now, these masks are in stock and will ship for free free for my listeners when you add the code sexyliberal at thenewdealshop.com. Again, free shipping if you use the code sexyliberal at thenewdealshop.com. Order your supply today. That's thenewdealshop.com. Get your new masks and keep yourself, your family, and your community safe. Thank you. The Bob Seska Show. It's interesting. I'd love to get your take on this, Laura. Um, when I'm talking with my friend Stephanie Miller of the Stephanie Miller Show, uh-huh. yeah, uh-huh. She, she and I always have this conversation about how uh, we could have been millionaires if we had decided to sell out our values and become conservative talk show hosts <laughs> rather than maintaining mm-hmm. our, our core values as liberals. Um, was that opportunity ever presented to you? Because I know there are so many, I have known so many, for example, morning DJs, like morning zoo DJs who made a career choice at some point. Well, we can't talk on FM radio anymore. The only place we can talk anymore is AM radio, but it requires us to be conservative. Well, fuck it. Okay. We'll I'll just become a conservative and be on AM talk radio now. Has that ever been presented to you? Because I, I know it's been whispered into my ear more than once. That hey, Bob, if you do this, it'll make you feel real good. And I desperately oh God, resist no, no, it. I won't say that it. I, I won't say anybody's ever come with the sort of big check already written out. Mm-hmm. If only I will sell out the left. No, it never got to that point. But it's certainly I've had agents who said, you know, if you teamed up with a comedian or you teamed up with a radical right winger, you could uh. be all over. And I, I think that possibility has been you know, real. And I think, you know, I think about it and I think, you know, maybe I could have gotten a few woods in edgeways and that would have been good. But mostly you'd be so victim of the structure of that kind of media. You can only mm-hmm. talk this long between commercials. You've got to have a break every three yeah. minutes. you got to do this. you got to do that. Um, and most of it's going to be witty banter between the anchors or not so witty. Um make light of everything, just talk about the elections. I think it's that last point that has always been the one I couldn't tolerate. Mm. We have a media now that basically only talks in on many different channels with many different political spins about electoral politics. The horse race. It's pretty much only subject, the horse race. Um, and not just during racing hours, but mm. all the time. Yeah. You know, and the race that already happened and the race that's not going to happen for another year and the race that people are thinking about a year from now, like, when in doubt, that's all that is talked about. I mean, we have California in on flames right now. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, what looks like a, a racial disparity in the COVID deaths that is double the fatalities in the black population per head than in the white population. We have a housing crisis coming down the pike that will blow our socks off. Yeah. And yet none of this can really be talked about because we don't talk about what Trump did or didn't say with Bob Woodward, which <laughs> we I, I believe we have to talk about it. But do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. the problem is everything else gets pushed to the side. And I think to me, right or left, top or down, um, bottom or up, you know, <laughs> um, that was the decisive thing for me. I wanted a platform uh, and to create a place where we could talk about a, a more diverse diet of topics. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, and that's what we've created. It seems like the left owns the culture in this country. As much as we like to think of ourselves in a way as uh, fighting an uphill battle, we're the underdogs, we're the Davids against the Goliaths and so on. At the same time, the left is kind of in control of American culture to an extent. It's just insofar as there's movie, TV, uh, music and so on, mostly uh, liberal controlled. But at the same time, why the hell can't we get real investment into actual liberal programming, Laura. It seems like, again, this is another explanation for why you can make a million dollars by selling out your values, by becoming a conservative talk show host. Why is there that kind of investment on the right, but we don't see it as much, especially given Hollywood and the amount of money that flies around Hollywood? Why isn't there more investment in in liberal programming? I think it comes back to the same place where we began, that there is a big 
need for a place in the media that is not completely reliant on corporate or political underwriting. Mm -hmm. There just is. Some subjects are not going to be commercially viable. You know, me talking about co-ops in Spain isn't, you know, an immediate seller of anything in particular. So as long as our media depend on corporations that are selling things to underwrite the programming, they're always going to pick the programming where the host will take off the airtime to say how great their product is. Uh, I'm not selling anything other than an idea. And I think, you know, it's a very good question. Why are liberal investors more willing to invest in a cultural product, a TV show of a, you know, comedic sort or a movie or a documentary um, and the right of kind of abandon that space in favor of kind of uh, demagoguery? It's a very good question. Um, some people would say the left's just not so demagogic as the other mm-hmm. side. Although I think in America we showed we could we could demagogue with the best of them. Um, yeah. And you know you got the Rachel Maddows of the world out there showing it can still be done. Um, it's a it's a huge question, Bob, and I, I wish I knew the answer. But if you had to pick culture or news, which would you go for? Oh yeah, well, obvious. Well, I would go for news, but I mean, as far as the culture, I think a lot more people would. Yeah, yeah, would choose culture. I mean, they do say you know that that the politics follows culture, that the mm-hmm. policy follows cultural change. Yeah, and we've kind of seen that whether it's 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 consciousness about the environment or LGBT equality, that things moved in the culture before they got legislated. You know, so maybe, maybe eventually, and maybe that's what we're seeing yeah. is that white supremacy, white male supremacy is being cultured out. And eventually we'll get rid of the, the politicians who are pulling backwards. Um, I got to believe it's a, it's a time limited. We've got to be at uh, the turning point. I feel like we've been at the death row of this my entire life, but maybe mm-hmm. that takes longer to throw. Well, one of the things I've noticed, Laura, just in terms of both uh, writing and podcasting, is that sometimes liberal topics just don't seem to resonate. And it's an area of immense frustration for me because I, for a, a significant period of time, I was covering the climate crisis with a lot of the writing that I was doing and blogging. But I found that the stuff that I was publishing about the climate crisis, and this is just one example wasn't getting the kind of traction online as the more polemical stuff, as the more demagogic stuff, as you put it. Is part of the problem the audience, or is it the fact that we're not packaging it the right way? Are we are we failing? Is the audience failing? Why aren't these topics resonating more, and what can we do about it? Well, I think sometimes we haven't covered things in the most engaging way. I think there is a certain part of responsibility that we bear. And I think if we come to every story, if we flag every story with, oh, my God, we're about to report on the end of the world as we know it, and there's nothing you can do, you know, like who's going to tune into that, right? Join our movement. We're being shot all around the world. Join us. No, we're not going to join that. Uh, You know, so I think it's sometimes the packaging, you know, you're about to see, you know, disastrous dying polar bears. Uh, but I think if you say you there, we're up against it. Here's a hero story. I mean, think of it another way. Every core story in culture is a hero story. Somebody up against the big challenge reaches out to a group of people, conquers the big challenge, moves forward. Like we can tell a lot of our stories in that way if we tell them if we put some different players in the mix. So maybe not the dying polar bear, maybe the grassroots group in in Louisiana that figured out how to create a housing trust that could bring people back after Katrina to live in a community where they not only contributed to the environmental protection of that community, but lived in a way that didn't allow properties to be just flipped for profit, but instead preserved for longevity. Mm-hmm. You know, there are there are stories that we could tell differently, but we're I think hardwired for the the boxing match and for the for the horse race. So that's always going to be there. And frankly, I think you know it wasn't until the 1990s that our news divisions had to make a buck, right? So so it was during that Gulf War, the first one in 1991, that the news divisions that were then owned by you know Westinghouse, Disney, and I don't remember who else were told, no, you too have to make money. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just the entertainment programming sponsoring the news. The news has to make money. Yeah, return on on investment by you know you have to get the advertising. So the advertisers literally said, we don't want our advertising bucked up against, butted up against the 
you know, this week's death toll on the front, you know, in the war. Uh, they, we have record of all of this. They, mm-hmm. they didn't want that. that they didn't want the, advert- the, the, the news content to be leading into their ad with, with something downer. So there's been corporate influence. There's been decline of a space that doesn't, uh, that's free of corporate influence. Um, and then there's been our reluctance to tell, I think, hero stories and heroine stories mm-hmm. about making change that's, that's doable. And instead we've satisfied ourselves with kind of Founding the alarm, but you know it's also true, Bob, that we don't have a fair. We don't. We, we haven't really tested this, have we? I mean, it's not like you can go onto your TV and choose any given moment. I want the electoral story or the story of the change being made in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not. We haven't really had fair choice about that. So the fact that you know we say these stories will inevitably draw all the eyeballs. Um, now it's true up to a point, but it's not been fairly tested, and I actually think we can build a pretty strong audience for for the alternative. Do you think there's a possibility, Laura, that we can convince uh, the programming departments of let's just say, uh, for the sake of argument, the big three networks? Can we convince the programming departments of those three networks to relinquish the news programming so that it's no longer part of the profit motive, that it's no longer driven by ratings and selling advertising, that it's just it's there for as a public service? Can we do that? Can that be accomplished? Well, it's a very good question, and it makes me think, you know, you know, we probably can't because it's very hard to have government meddling uh, with private corporations, but we sure can create an alternative. We can create a competitor, and I think of what Ted Turner did yeah. in creating an all-news network. You know, uh, CNN didn't exist once upon a time. It exists now. It is mm-hmm. also commercially driven at this point, but he showed that we actually needed news beyond what the networks were serving up. Uh, in the same way that MTV showed that we needed uh, culture and music beyond what was yeah. being um, featured on, 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 on video and television at that time. So I think I tend to think more in terms of, you know, creating the competition than in, you know, meddling with the, the private business model. I think eventually that business model is going to have to fail. The one thing that we could do to really call them to account the cable news networks is to change our campaign financing system yeah. so that those campaign ads didn't fill their coffers come election time uh, to the point where, you know, they, their business model works. I don't think if you watch the TV channels that you can stream, if you watch CNN news streaming, you see ad after ad for CNN, which means they don't have much advertising revenue on the streaming Mm -hmm. side because so much of their revenue is campaign financed, uh, especially during election season, targeting a geographic location. So I think if you dried that up, if, you, if that's the right word, if you, if you created a public financing system for our elections that would dry up a huge slush fund of advertising for commercial news, then I think uh, we would see them have to return to a more diverse diet of programming. And, and frankly, others would be able to compete. At the moment, it's impossible. When we talk about campaign financing, yeah. a subject they will not cover on those programs for obvious reasons. Um, we're talking millions of dollars that feed directly to those broadcasters and really skew the, um, the, the, the underwriting picture for all the rest of us. Maybe a constitutional amendment along those lines should be in the works at some point. If I'm if, for it. it. Uh, absolutely. I don't yeah. know how we could possibly have elections without campaign finance. <laughs> Not just campaign finance reform. Fully funded public elections. That's what we need. Yeah, Only public financing. I'm jotting that down on the list of like three million things that need to happen if this election goes well. <laughs> Just the series of reforms that we're going to have to enact in this country to close all of the gaps that Donald Trump has exposed in the system. That's going to be a chore in and of itself. And then I, I think things like uh, media reform, campaign finance reform really need to be in the form of a constitutional amendment to move forward and have that actually actually stick. But I mean, going back to the election, are, are you feeling hopeful uh, about the uh, about where we are with this? Do you think how do you think this is all going to turn um, out? Well, are the words cautiously optimistic overused in this period? I think probably. <laughs> <That's about> right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I live I've been living in a part of upstate New York where there are an awful lot of Trump signs. Yeah. And the Trump supporters are very, very you know, vocal and articulate, very uh, assertive. They feel pretty confident themselves. 
I don't think the Democrats did themselves any favors with their very lame, lily-livered convention. Um, but it doesn't look as if there was any bump from, to either party from those conventions. What we need is a candidate. I, I, would, I wish Harris and Biden would start speaking directly to the issues facing most Americans um, and a little bit less to the um, uh, deep feelings of, of Joe Biden himself. Yeah. Uh, I get it that he makes a lot of phone calls. I would like to see him make some phone calls to get PPEs to the healthcare providers that still don't have them, to get food and housing to people who are about to be evicted, support for some of these um, bills like Ilhan Omar's bill to cancel um, rent debt uh, for the most needy. I mean, we have some concrete things that need to be done. And frankly, I think it would be the right thing for the Democratic team to just move into gear as if they were in office. Um, Trump has no idea what to do with his office. Uh, they should show him what to do with it and spend a little bit less time campaigning, perhaps a little bit more time actually doing stuff that people need done. Mm-hmm. Um, contribute one day of your campaign finance hall yeah. to uh, supporting medical workers or people in need. That's the kind of thing I've been I've been thinking about. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm hopeful. I feel like our antenna are up. We know where the cracks are in our electoral system, our crevasses. The fight around the public, the postal service has been well-timed and very vigorous. There's not a postage stamp to be had <laughs> anywhere in my district. I don't think everyone's writing postcards to one another yeah. um, and to voters. Um, I think that these news stories of this week, the Atlantic story around veterans, it does seem to be having some effect in the veterans community. And then today's one around the president's utter disregard for the lives of so many Americans. Um, along with the continuing story around racial violence that Trump is a you know stoker of. Yeah. Um, what, 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 if Biden and Harris can't win this, yeah. <laughs> that's sort of where I come down. Yeah. But I do think we need to start one ball rolling, Bob, and maybe you can do this from your platform. You know, the networks and the television shows that we've been talking about, the cable news, they need to right now determine, you know, plan for their election night reporting to be different. Mm -hmm. It can't be geared as it normally is to the results of the evening. Mm -hmm. Because unless we have a truly overwhelming turnout, which we may have for the Democrats, the election results are not going to be in and the counting is still going to be happening. And they need to start those influential hosts that have millions of people tuning in every day, some of them, um, need to right now start preparing their audience for a longer election count than usual mm-hmm. and to set the groundwork right now. The tone is not going to be decide, you know, the, the tone can't be the, the race to the evening's final verdict. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I think that's just playing into Trump's hands. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we saw what happens uh, when that occurs in 2000 uh, in the 2000 election yep. where the networks were overly eager to declare a winner. And then it turned out, Everything had to be retracted and then chaos <laughs> ensued. And yeah. I think we're also looking at chaos this time around, despite uh, any best practices that might occur, uh, you know, across the networks or, or what have you. I think it's going to be chaos. What cha- if they said it's not chaos? You yeah. know, what if they said it's not chaos? This is our election system at work under COVID. Yeah. People are mailing in ballots because that's the safe and healthy thing to do. It's going to take a little longer to count. What if they started right now saying, you know, we're going to end our programming election night, say, at the usual hour? We're not mm-hmm. going to do extended broadcasts. We'll check in with us the next day. This is our election system at work. This is democracy in America. We're resilient. We're progressive. You know, we're, we, we can respond to the moment, uh, responsive. Um, why not start messaging that today? Oh, yeah, yeah. All I'm saying is they can do that, and I'm sure some of them, I would imagine MSNBC is at least trying to figure out a way to be responsible about all this, NBC News in general. At the same time, Uh, Again, going back to 2000, where Fox News drove that mayhem, and there's no reason to believe that they won't do that again now, possibly even just, you know, eliminating their brain room, eliminating their math room or whatever the hell they call it and saying, yeah, well, we're we're forecasting that Donald Trump's going to win this and election night. And then all the other networks will be like, oh, crap, what do we do now? (laughs) Like, again, 2000. It, that literally happened where Fox News made a call and uh, said, or it was in reverse where Fox News was like, well, we don't know. We don't know what's going right. on here. Yeah. 
So I'm I'm just yeah. I'm concerned about that. But I think what I'm concerned about more than the election it's, itself is what happens if the horrible if Trump gets another term. How do we proceed? What happens if he wins? Well, with any luck, he goes right after us and we get tremendous visibility and ratings. No. <laughs> See, now that's positive thinking right there. Positive projection. Uh, no, I mean, we, we've talked about how my show looks at long-term things and isn't written, you know, driven by the news cycle. On the election, of the week of the election, we will have two live shows, one right before, one right after. And the way that we're inviting guests to those shows is I'm thinking very carefully about who can lay out a roadmap for the future at the local level, the state level, the government, the, the federal level, sort of no matter what happens. So that at least people, when they tune into the Laura Flanders show, which they'll be able to find at lauraflanders.org, they'll, they'll get some messaging from people who've been a long time in their in various struggles about what can be done to look after one another and the, the health and safety of your community, uh, regardless of who's in power, pretty much. And the work that needs to be done is much of it um, challenging the power of corporations. So, yeah, the power of the right wing and the militia and the mad people supporting Donald Trump, although we shouldn't say bad about people's mental health, but the cult members, let's put it that way, yeah. um, is one big challenge. An even bigger challenge that we face, no matter who's in the White House, is the, the sort of monopoly rule of a handful of corporations. So th there's plenty of things that we can do. And I think the most critical thing for us to say is we, we cannot look away from the condition of life for the majority of Americans. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Trump cannot soak up all of the airtime and all of our attention. We must, at the end of the day, create networks of support for one another um, and get to know one another. Uh, the, the hordes of cult members are your neighbors. <laughs> yeah. You can't just write them off. Uh, and until we actually address what is leading so many people to um, support Donald Trump, that 40% of people who respond to polls, which is not everyone, um, we're going to be in this, in this challenge. Um, we're going to be facing the fact that some people are still attached to being part of a white male superior um, culture that is outmoded on its way out and nowhere near as fun as living in the contemporary, not white, not male, yeah. no supremacist society. So let's try to make it attractive. Mm -hmm. I think it is attractive to live in the 21st century. Yeah. Um, and I'm refusing to let the Trumpers take that away from me. <laughs> well, good for you. And you know what? I'm just so <laughs> I'm so glad that uh, there is a, a centered, intelligent uh, voice like yours out there contributing to the uh, discourse in this way. In particular, the kind of things that you're talking about on your show. And I hope everyone tunes in and, and watches on uh, PBS. Also, it's lauraflanders.org, right? That's right. Okay. .org. We launch a new show every Sunday at 1130 on our YouTube channel or the World Channel. And we're on about 97 additional public television stations throughout the week. And most of the top 25 markets, we're on in New York, L.A., Chicago, you name it. Um, if you have any problems, just write to me, Laura at LauraFlanders.org. I look forward to hearing from you. And Bob, it's great. I'm so glad you have this show. And thanks so much for bringing me on. Thank you so much, Laura. Really, really appreciate it. I can't wait to talk to you again. Look forward to it. Thanks so much, Bob. Take care. Bye-bye.